The U.S. Supreme Court has handed down two landmark decisions in the last two days. In a 5-4 vote announced this morning, the court recognized marriage equality for same-sex couples in all 50 states. This comes one day after the court's 6-3 ruling upholding nationwide federal health care subsidies under the Affordable Care Act. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, and today on Noon Edition, we're joined by a panel of experts to discuss these historic cases and what they mean for Hoosiers and people across the country. And we want to hear from you. What was your reaction to these rulings? We invite you to join the conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And the U.S. Supreme Court today handed down another historic ruling in a 5-4 vote announced just after 10 o'clock. Court legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. This decision comes just one day after the court announced that health care recipients under the Affordable Care Act will continue to receive federal subsidies in states that have not set up their own health care exchanges. In essence, it was a big victory for President Obama. Today on Noon Edition, we're going to discuss those landmark cases with a panel of experts who include Beth Kate, who's a constitutional law expert and associate professor in the Indiana University School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Kosali Simon is a health economist and SPIA professor. Brian Powell is a professor in the IU Department of Sociology. And Ryan Scott is an associate professor in the IU Maurer School of Law. If you want to join the conversation today, and many of you may want to do that, uh, our numbers are 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. And you can tweet us at Noon Edition. So, it's a big day. It's a pretty newsy day. We, uh, it would have been newsy enough if uh, we just talked to, about the, the Affordable Care Act, but uh, the decision this morning was, you know, on same-sex marriage was the one that everybody was anticipating. Beth Kate, uh, did you expect it today? I did not expect it today, um, given that the court had five other five decisions total left uh, to issue. I thought that they would actually wait for Monday <laughs> to issue this one. And, um, and then maybe get out of Dodge like they did after they you know, issued the first Affordable Care Act ruling. Um, uh, but some people have pointed out, and we were just talking earlier about this date being the same date that a couple of uh, major earlier decisions involving same-sex rights had come out. So maybe that was in the back of someone's mind. I don't know. Oh, interesting. <laughs> now, Brian Powell, you've been following this issue and following the, the whole, all the trends about same-sex couples and, and same-sex rights, um, were you surprised at the decision? What, what's your reaction to it? Let me just put it that way. My reaction was, oh, I have to change the survey I'm doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> we are doing interviews right now on Americans' views on these very issues. Mm-hmm. And so now we're going to have to change a couple questions. So my other reaction, my other reaction was, 
um, not being surprised at all. To me, the question was simply, was it going to be a 5-4 decision or 6-3 decision? Mm -hmm. and, um, um, and I think for most Americans, it's maybe a surprise, but it's not inconsistent where, where Americans are right now. So a 5-4 decision is about, what, 55%? And right now, we're around 58 to 60% of Americans supporting same-sex marriage. And talk about how that trend line has changed, because it's really, it's really gone to that. It's sort of flipped in the last decade or so. It absolutely has flipped. When we first conducted interviews in 2003, 40% of Americans, two-fifths of Americans, were in favor of same-sex marriage. And that was a figure on virtually every national poll, maybe a few percentage less, a few percentage more, but it was two-fifths. Now, uh, in 2015, it's flipped, and so now it's three-fifths. It's two-fifths who are opposed and three-fifths who are in favor. And that is a really, really high percentage. I mean, one way to put it in perspective is we have not had a president who has received 60% of the vote, I think, since Richard Nixon. Mm, wow. Okay, so who was the – talk about, if, if you could, Beth, talk about the 5-4 the decision this morning, the split. Um, and, Brian, you said you thought it might be 6-3, so you can talk about, you know, which one you thought might go the other way. So it is a 5-4 split with Justice Kennedy writing the opinion for the majority. And so it's Kennedy, uh, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan in the majority. And uh, four dissenters are Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Justices Scalia, Thomas, and Alito. Okay. And I, I actually thought it would be 5-4. And to be honest with you, I wasn't entirely sure in which direction this one would go, only because Justice Kennedy has shown over the years kind of two forces that operate within him very strongly. I think on the one hand, we've seen he has been the author of the main decisions that uh, recognize same-sex uh, uh, individuals, or sorry, same-sex couples and homosexuals' rights. And, um, and it's clear, and this comes through very forcefully in his opinion today, his concern for protecting the dignity of uh, those individuals uh, equally with, um, with heterosexuals. On the other hand, he's also shown a very strong uh, interest in protecting uh, federalism and the forces of democracy in making uh, big policy decisions, not having the court make those decisions. He gave a speech back a couple of years ago um, uh, during the dedication of a library in his name saying it shouldn't be these unelected justices and judges who make these decisions. We need to prove that democracy works. And, and based on what Brian just said, you know, there has been this major shift in public opinion. And so I, I really was, you know, I thought Justice Kennedy might, looking to kind of writing for his legacy maybe a little bit, um, go in the direction that he went today. But I was not sure. And I didn't necessarily think it would be 6-3. So I'm curious to hear, too, who you thought might go. Well, I, I thought Roberts might go. And I thought Roberts might go. And, you know, I'm not a legal scholar. I'm just, you know, I, I just read through the transcripts, you know, the, I read through the you know, questions were asked. And he, he did ask several questions originally about the idea of sex discrimination. And one argument could be mm -hmm. that same, the prohibition against same-sex marriage is sex discrimination. It's not about sexuality. It's not about sexual minorities. It'd be about sex discrimination. And it seemed by when I heard that, it seemed to me that that might be an opening for him to give a decision that would have been, in terms of the pop, in terms of the public, a popular decision. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought it would have been a pragmatic decision and one that still could be in line with some type of legal reasoning. Mm-hmm. But this is a sociologist who knows very, very little about the law <laughs> saying this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I want to bring in the uh, law professor to talk about this. Ryan Scott uh, is with us. He's associate professor in the Maurer School of Law. And Ryan, you are uh, a lot of so you've studied a lot about the separation of powers, and what Beth was talking about is, you know, the judges making this decision versus um, the Congress making a decision like this. So, how does this case sort of, uh, you know, when you look at it from that that window, that that perspective, was this a case of judicial overreach, or do you think it was a particularly or just a legitimate decision? Uh, that's the major charge of the dissenters in this case. All four of the dissenters, uh, by the way, all four dissenters wrote separate opinions expressing their dissatisfaction with the outcome in this case. And the major charge that comes through is that this is a, a, this is judicial activism. This is a, a taking away a subject that's properly uh, a matter for public debate and democratic process and having five lawyers decide the question for everyone in the country. And, and uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, has a great soundbite at the end of his principal dissent. He, he recognizes that for many uh, same-sex couples, this is a cause for celebration, that proponents of marriage equality are going to celebrate today. He says, I don't begrudge anyone their celebration. So uh, celebrate, he says. Uh, celebrate the achievement of a desired goal, but do not celebrate the Constitution. It had nothing to do with it. Wow. And the, the charge here is that the task of the court is not to just do whatever popular opinion demands. It's true there's been a major shift here so that a majority of Americans now support marriage equality. But the task of the courts is different. They're called upon not to decide what the majority of Americans would prefer, but to interpret the Constitution and that the majority's opinion here is uh, an exercise in uh, discovering previously unrecognized rights, extending beyond existing precedent, and uh, short-circuiting a public debate in a way that's quite destructive. Well, what was Justice Roberts' um, legal opinion on why was this consti- why would it be constitutionally correct to ban same-sex marriage? So, the. A gist of the majority's opinion is that the, that due process, the Fourteenth Amendment's uh, due process, liberty, and equal protection interests somehow combine to form a uh, a right for same-sex couples to marry. Uh, that marriage is a fundamental right. And Chief Justice Roberts sees this as an extension beyond the court's previous precedents, in particular inconsistent with a case called Glucksburg from the uh, late 1990s in which the court had suggested that uh, fundamental rights of this kind should be narrowly understood in light of history and tradition. And and, uh, he sees Justice Kennedy's approach as... uh, uh, very malleable, and uh, like the court is able to discover whatever uh, uh, principles it, it likes. I, I'll, I'll single out another quote from the dissent just to get a, a flavor of the uh, complaint. There's one passage in which Justice Kennedy, uh, writing for the majority, uh, su- suggests that constitutional rights may arise from a better informed understanding of how constitutional imperatives define a liberty that remains urgent in our own era. And Justice Scalia, writing in the dissent, says, huh? What does that mean? Isn't that such a a, a malleable standard that uh, justices could invent essentially any right? This is substituting the justice's opinion for uh, uh, and and embedding it in the Constitution. That's the thrust of the complaint. And so complaints of judicial activism are very common. Everybody says that the court is being activist when the court reaches decisions that they don't like. Uh, Liberals do the same thing in in, uh, free speech cases when the court... 
cases like Citizens United. That's judicial activism, right? It's a it's a result I don't like. Everybody says the court should be restrained in some areas and and not restrained in others. I think this uh, the the complaint has a, a somewhat stronger basis in cases like these where the approach that the court has taken is it's hard to see any end point to it where the the discovering these principles and traditions is a, a, a much more a, a difficult a, a difficult to understand the approach that the court is using and therefore to understand what its outer limits are if, if there's any real constraint on the court's power well, I want to follow up on this with Kosalee Simon because the healthcare, um, the ACA ruling yesterday, which had a you know a lifespan, it was headlines for about twelve hours, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but that the uh, a lot of the dissenters in that case, and people like you know Governor Mike Pence, and a lot of people, a lot of the Indiana delegation, were crying judicial activism in that case too. So. Do you sort of relate that judicial activism uh, from the dissenters to the ACA case? I think there are lots of parallels here being drawn between to what extent is this enforcing what the what the people want, what the Congress intended, as opposed to strictly interpreting what the words mean. I, I'm going to um, leave it to the, the legal experts <laughs> to say a little bit more about that. But from an from an economist standpoint. We can look at the outcome and say, who are the winners, who are the losers, what are the dollars at stake, what are the ramifications of this? And, and that's very, a very different take on the outcome than was the legal process followed? Is this in line with previous experiences? Um, but there was certainly a lot of dollars at stake in the decision. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, so Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act has been a very political issue from the day it was proposed. So. Can I, can I just add um, on this issue of judicial activism? Um, judicial activism kind of has an, an understanding among lawyers, meaning, you know, j- judges go in and they strike down statutes which are passed by legislatures or they're overturning established precedent. It's not, as Ryan was alluding to before, simply coming out with a decision that you disagree with at the end of the day. That's not judicial activism. And so um, in the Affordable Care Act case, a statute passed by a legislature was upheld, and in, in my opinion, it was justified by principles of statutory construction and precedent. And so I didn't, I don't see the charge of judici- uh, judicial activism there. In this case, as Ryan was saying before, I think the the claim is, wait a second, is this jettisoning, you know, really all of the sort of prior cases, um, warnings about not creating new rights, not going outside the bounds of judicial restraint. And one thing worth noting is this, the basis for the decision today is a very broad basis on this substantive due process um, concept that Ryan mentioned before, as opposed to a much narrower approach that was taken, for example, by the Seventh Circuit, Mm -hmm. saying this is based on equal protection principles. The government has to justify, if it's going to treat people differently under the law, it has to have a suitable justification for that. And the Seventh Circuit found that all of the reasons for treating gay and straight couples differently under the law didn't hold up. Um, and so from you know, that standpoint, struck it down. But the, the majority chose not to really go in that direction. And this is written in very expansive kind of language, which gave rise to the strong dissents that Ryan was summarizing before. Yeah, and I want to follow up on that. I was going to ask you a question about that before you, you talked about the Seventh Circuit. But it, it seemed to me, and you know where, I mean, the, Virtually all the court cases, when it got to uh, the appellate court area, had 
ruled that same-sex marriage was was supported by the Constitution. So until the Sixth Circuit until, ruled, well, right, <laughs> and that's, right, then, that's right. the case that created the conflict that uh, caused the Supreme Court to go ahead and grant cert and, and jump back in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people saw that this was coming. Things were bubbling up. There was a lot of litigation. At some point, the court was going to confront a conflict in circuits that would ordinarily, that's a strong reason for the court to grant review in a case and, and try to decide the issue. Okay. Okay. So, well, so to help explain it to me, so when you talk about precedence and, and uh, that perhaps you know, the judges were sort of making law here, I guess, uh, wouldn't those, you know, I, I'm seeing it as a, you know, a layman that all these other, all these other um, circuit courts and all these, all these courts, all these appellate courts had said, we're going to go ahead and, you know, we uphold the right. And that would seem to me to say everything, all the legal decisions were going in that direction. Well, that's true. Uh, of course, the, the Circuit Courts of Appeals yeah, right. precedent isn't binding on the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. They, are, they are beholden only to themselves. And, yeah. and since they can overrule their old decisions, really not even to themselves. So mm-hmm. they've got a lot of latitude when it comes to announcing uh, decisions of this kind. Uh, I, uh, picking up on Beth's point about the rationale for the decision, it's true that uh, there were a couple different legal theories floated by the parties, floated by Amiki in the case. Uh, there are other rationales that the court could have chosen that would have been narrower. In particular, uh, the Obama administration advanced an equal protection argument, very similar to the one that the Seventh Circuit adopted in the case that arose out of Indiana uh, back uh, last fall. Uh, that would have been a very different rationale, and it would have had important implications for future challenges involving dis- distinctions on the basis of sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. So uh, bans mm-hmm. on adoption by gay mm-hmm. couples, for example, would have been clearly governed by a decision mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Because we got a much more confusing, just, this is Justice Kennedy's calling card, these very uh, doctrinally puzzling, open-ended uh, rationales, it's less clear what the implications of this kind of decision are for other distinctions on the basis of sexual orientation. So going forward, he's really left the door open then for continuing issues and questions, and it's going to require ongoing clarification, probably at the Supreme Court level, based on what we've seen in this situation so far. Would you agree with that? I mean, I think yes. And it's interesting that he tries to um, shut down one area where people have said, well, what about the next case, which Mm -hmm. would be plural marriage? And he distinctly throws in some references to marriage historically traditionally is two people coming together <laughs> but that it's two people doesn't have, have to be two people of the same gender mm-hmm. um, and so you can see that what he's trying to do I think is to yeah. um, uh, to, to shut down that uh, set of arguments but um, but yeah it's 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 interesting it'll be interesting to see what comes up next because even that attempt at um, a narrow bit of the ruling was challenged by the dissent, saying, mm-hmm. well, really, why? You know, because in history, you can find some plural marriage. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Anyway. So really, he could have, in your, I, I want to make sure I understand your opinion correctly, that he, it would have been a, a great simplification going forward if they would have used the equal protection argument uh, in the majority um, uh, statement as opposed to the, the route they took. I mean, to be honest with you, I think it would have been a a much more straightforward and not mm-hmm. maybe given rise to as as much of the criticism. And I wonder about Justice Rob, Chief Justice Roberts in that regard because he says in his dissent, 
you know, this things might look differently under an equal protection analysis when you look at the laws that attach to the status of marriage. Then you have to ask, well, why do you get this benefit only if you were um, if you're married and not, say, in a civil union or something like that? Like what what really matters here? Um, and so it could you know, he could could have been in play in some of those decisions and perhaps still will. I don't really know yet. I don't think any of us know because the decision's about two hours old, yeah. how all of this will unfold. But um, but that seemed, you know, when the Seventh Circuit issued its decision and, and other courts similarly relying on that equal protection rationale, the government really has to show what, what is the what is the, the differential harm mm-hmm. produced or what is the greater benefit from limiting marriage to uh, heterosexual couples? Mm-hmm. And, and that was just basically the, the rationales put forth were unpersuasive. So, so I, can, I think Mary Catherine and I can understand the equal protection <laughs> re- argument. argument. Right. So, it, you know, that's two words, equal protection argument, three words. So can you succinctly um, talk about what, what was Kennedy's rationale? What was the, the majority's rationale? Of, can you do it in three yeah. words? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, three words are, are not nearly enough to cover that terrain. Uh, it's a, a, a due process uh, liberty analysis that identifies grounded in uh, notions like individual autonomy and uh, dignity that uh, marriage is uh, the keystone of the nation's social order that states use marriage as a proxy for all sorts of, uh, of government benefits and other uh, private interactions that the laws use marriage in a central way. That personal choice regarding marriage is inherent in individual autonomy. That's uh, a principle that uh, he relies on. That the right to marry is fundamental, which has some basis in the court's previous uh, case law, Loving versus Virginia, uh, treats the right to marry as uh, fundamental. That's the case that struck right. down anti-miscegenation laws. Uh, and that marriage between two persons, he's careful to say, uh, is a, a, a relationship unlike any others in its importance, that marriage is just the most important kind of relationship that, uh, that two people can have with each other. And an interesting final point that uh, the court relied on, as it did in Windsor, is uh, the role of children, that marriage and, and same-sex marriage, uh, no different than uh, uh, marriage between uh, people of the opposite sex, protects children, safeguards children, uh, and so has a connection to rights like uh, child rearing and procreation, other rights that the court in its due process cases had uh, identified. I wish I could tell you doctrinally how all of those points go together. It's kind of a, a throw all of those into a stew and stir them around and sprinkle it with equal protection and out comes a holding. There's, it's not a straightforward uh, analysis, which I think is one of the reasons that it's, it's not as neat as the tiers of scrutiny and the government interest and the, uh, that, that uh, we see in some other contexts. Uh, but it's not out of step, I will say, with uh, the way that the court approached the questions in Windsor, with the way that it approached uh, uh, Lawrence, uh, Lawrence uh, yeah. in versus Texas back in 2003. It's, uh, there's uh, precedent for this uh, Kennedy, uh, uh, the Justice Kennedy uh, model of analyzing legal questions. Yeah. <laughs> so so <laughs> Windsor was what case? Uh, Striking down DOMA. That's okay. the Defense of Marriage Act case okay. from just yeah. a couple terms ago. Okay. Uh, and the, the court had an opportunity to decide this question in a companion case to Windsor back uh, Mm -hmm. a couple terms ago, and it ducked that chance. And then uh, last fall, it denied cert in the Indiana case and some others. And and so I I actually, my sense was I I wasn't really sure how this was going to come out. I thought it was a much closer question than uh, people realized, given that the court had seemed reluctant to reach this question for so long. I I wasn't sure how it was going to come out. And your mention of, uh, just real quickly, your mention of the Love case was 
wasn't that the one, the interracial marriage? Uh, loving versus Virginia, loving, that's loving, right. Kate. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. I think, I mean, what seemed to emerge um, for me from the Kennedy opinion here, uh, I agree with ev- absolutely everything Ryan just said. This is classic Kennedy struggling with, you know, the doctrine. And there's some equal protection parts to this, too. It's kind of like here's a fundamental right. So, you know, why isn't it available to people who seem to present no different circumstances? But at the end of the day, I think he's, you know, he's struggling with, on the one hand, he believes in the democratic process, and he talks a little bit about there's been a lot of debate so far on this, but he also really underscores this sort of harm, the current harm to people, so that if you let the debate go go on, that is not without impact right Mm. now. And probably, if I had to boil it down, I'd say that that which has always sort of animated, I think, all of these decisions um, that Ryan's been talking about and we've been discussing is, you know, what what is the harm to the dignity, to the real tangible harm to people and to kids in these relationships? Um, And that, you know, that means that we can't let the debate go on. And in fact, constitutional rights are supposed to be beyond the realm of majoritarian processes, right, in democratic mm-hmm. debates. But I think that, that that seems to be where his deep inner struggle has kind of led him is to say, you know, this is not without real harm. Right. Okay, we're going to have to take a short break. This is going very rapidly. When we come back, uh, I want to talk with Coastal Lee Simon a little bit about the ACA ruling, uh, and then we'll go whatever direction our listeners want us to go, and we all, we panelists, you, you panelists want to go. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. A lot to talk about in here today. We're talking about uh, the Supreme Court decisions on noon edition. Uh, Just this morning, the Supreme Court handed down a historic ruling and a 5-4 vote announced uh, just after 10 o'clock the court legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. And uh, this decision comes one day after the court announced that health care recipients under the Affordable Care Act will continue to receive federal subsidies in states that have not set up their own health care exchanges. So both of these decisions were huge. We have four guests with us in the studio. Beth Kate, a constitutional law expert and associate professor in the Indiana University School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Brian Powell is a professor in the IU Department of Sociology. Kosalee Simon is a health economist and SPIA professor. And Ryan Scott is an associate professor in the IU Maurer School of Law. If you want to join our conversation, please give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at one 877 285-9348, and you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, or you can send us a question on Twitter at noon edition. Well, I want to go back to the ACA case, which was huge news yesterday. 
um, Kosalee Simon is here, and I, I just want to ask about the you know the impact on this case. I've read a lot of you know a lot of people who have um, reacted to the case. Uh, a lot of the folks in Indiana with great disappointment. You know, this was seen as a way to undo Obamacare. It seems to me, uh, and then other President Obama, of course, came out and had a very strong statement about his um, you know his his view of, of the court ruling. So, you know, what, what did this court ruling for the six, the six in the majority come down to? It seemed to have come down to uh, understanding what Congress intended and the fact that the subsidies are such a key aspect of stabilizing insurance markets. So we'll go back to what the Affordable Care Act intended to do. Two main things, mm-hmm. insure the uninsured and reduce the rising cost of care while improving the quality at the same time. Insuring the uninsured, two main ways this is done, Medicaid expansions and subsidies through these exchange marketplaces. So this decision of yesterday had to do with the second part, the exchange subsidies, and in the states that rather than setting up their own infrastructure, use the federal government's healthcare.gov infrastructure. So it is, it's more than half, it's 34 states there. In those states, the question was, these subsidy dollars that are flowing to help people buy health insurance of all the people who are newly insured, a lot of people are buying insurance through those dollars that would then be at stake. And it's not that had the decision gone the other way, there would be no insurance for these 34 states in those state exchanges. It just meant that we would have to think about a a really arduous process of what our state's going to do to try and keep these subsidies. Is there going to be another effect? So it's it's a lot of things averted, but it means that now the, the dollars that have been flowing since the start of 2014 will continue. And it means it means a lot for, for a lot of states, but here, for example, for, for Indiana. Right now, every month, about $51 million comes to help Indiana residents who qualify for these subsidies purchase coverage. There are, as of the end of March this year, 180,000 Indiana residents who purchase coverage on the exchange. 89% of them, or about 160,000, receive some form of a subsidy. Those who receive a subsidy, their incomes are between one and one-third or so and, and four times the federal poverty level. And the average subsidy amount they get is about $320 per month or so. So the immediate impact, had this decision gone the other way, is that next month, uh, depending on how this would have played out at some point or if there wasn't a solution to, to undo this, premiums would have risen a lot and people would have dropped coverage. Mm-hmm. So those are the immediate Im- implications and a lot of downstream implications. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of other issues still left to grapple with in, in the law, of course. Well, I, I think I read somewhere that, that the estimate was 70 percent of people would probably have, have dropped their coverage. Correct. Oh, right. There, w- there would have right. been a lot of people who immediately, as the premium mm-hmm. goes up, mm-hmm. would have dropped coverage mm-hmm. because the reason we got a lot of people insured after the subsidy started is because that meant the price Mm-hmm. dropped, of course. There are other secondary impacts that would have happened because as people left the insurance market, it would have been the healthier people would have left, and then insurers would have had to raise premiums further. Some insurers would have dropped out of the market. That would have led 
to fewer insurers competing and premiums rising further. So lots of other. Mm-hmm. Now, did this case hinge on the language which referred to the state exchanges? Is that? Yes. So the, the words were an exchange established by the state. So premium, the, the help with purchasing health insurance in the Affordable Care Act language was written as available to exchanges established by the state. Mm-hmm. And, and that was what the case hinged on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, again, I'll, I'll defer to my uh, legal expert colleagues on, on how that all played out. Um, but the, uh, the end result is, is that now effort goes back into thinking about where we were when we last left off to go towards the, the King versus Burwell case. And, and, and that left, we're still back at having many challenges in making the Affordable Care Act work. And many challenges people see in rising costs, narrowing networks, what's going to happen in the future to the premiums as uh, health care costs rise and as some of the protections that are given to insurers uh, start to, to, to drop away, uh, what's going to happen now that we see a lot of consolidation among health insurance companies. Um, so many things left, aside from the political challenges, many economic challenges left. Before I, I go to the legal experts to talk a little bit about this case, I want to talk about the, the economic challenges because a lot of, again, a lot of the, the people who were upset about the decision yesterday, I think of, you know, Governor Pence sent out a statement, Dan Coates sent out a statement, um, Todd Rakita sent out a statement, a lot of a lot of other folks, uh, mainly from the Republican side, about how Obamacare has has basically kept people from being able to afford insurance, and a lot of issues about. I think you sort of mentioned, you know, narrowing options for people. I mean, how real are those concerns? They are. They're very real, especially uh, when you consider that that. Coverage. So let's talk about all the different types. Medicaid expansions. We we haven't talked much about that, but but I think that's a the huge issue we go back to because 21 states still have not mm-hmm. taken on the Medicaid expansion. So if you think about public policy as intending first to help the poorest of society, this is where attention should, you know, really go to. It's estimated that there are about four million more uninsured who would get coverage if the 21 states that haven't yet expanded Medicaid expand and 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 that coverage is is very comprehensive we may question whether providers are paid enough under medicaid but but it doesn't open people up to cost sharing in the way that these new plans do so there are there are limits on cost sharing in the exchange plans up to about $6000 per year per individual about $13000 per family and the premium subsidies are available until four times the federal poverty level. But there is also protection against the cost sharing, but that ends sooner at about two and a half times the federal poverty level. So we're very concerned about cost sharing because these plans tend to be high deductible plans and because of the narrowing network and what that might do. So what this means is that as your network of providers gets to be fewer and fewer you may end up going and having care at an out-of-network provider. That is not something you're protected against under the, the law. Okay. 
All right. So, uh, again, our phone numbers are 855-0811. That's an 812 number. And toll-free, 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash student edition. And you can tweet at noon edition. So, judicial activism in this case. That was discussed because I think at least some of the, some of the things I read were, were um, the majority talked about how this was the intent even though it might not say that, this is how they interpreted it. Beth? Yeah. Um, I, the case really, although it, it sort of has been, the attention's been focused around the words that Coastley mentioned in exchange established by the state, it's kind of textbook law in statutory interpretation that you don't read words in isolation, you don't read a provision in isolation, you, you're the goal of courts, including the Supreme Court, is to read language in a statute to uh, to make sense of the whole um, and to uh, obviously serve the the purpose of the statute. As long, if there's a reasonable reading and interpretation of the statutory terms that reflects a statutory purpose and serves it and it makes sense with everything around it or does the least violence possible of the possible interpretations, um, that's really where the, the court should go and it's where it did go. And when you look at the, the history of how this law got passed, if you look at the language of the provisions in context, um, and everyone on the court, even Justice Scalia, would say you read statutory provisions in context, you, you, you need to look at that context. Well, the context here really supported the outcome here. And I, I give a lot of credit to Chief Justice Roberts for the decision he wrote because it's written, and he's a, he's a very good writer generally, but he's a very clear writer. And I think he laid out um, as clearly as possible the reasoning and, and in a way that acknowledged the, um, the, the differences in, um, in the language, some of the inconsistencies in the language. Um, but but that's uh, you know largely produced by the the weirdness of the passage of this law and it didn't go through the usual back and forth that many uh, statutes go through before it's passed where some of it gets cleaned up. He mentioned there were three section 1563s in this act I and mean, that kind of stuff mm-hmm. you know goes through. But when you when you look at it wasn't nothing really emerged to say. Um, yes, people anticipated that subsidies would be lost if the federal government ran the exchange within a state as opposed to the state running the exchange. So I think, you know, at bottom, I think the majority had the stronger of the argument. I, I don't, wouldn't really, like I said before, think of that as judicial activism. It upheld, upheld the statute. It didn't do violence to precedent. It, mm-hmm. so. Okay, Ryan? Well, a lot of scholars saw this case as a great test of uh, textualism as an approach to statutory interpretation. So the the idea that uh, you focus on the words of the text, and if the text is clear, then you're done. You don't need to consult the intentions of the legislature, don't need to think about the consequences, however dire they may be, uh, that if the words are clear enough, then, uh, then the case is over. And it's interesting, in the opinions, I think all of the justices agree on that principle. If the words are sufficiently clear, even in context, then the, the case is over. Uh, uh, by contrast, I think everyone agrees that if it's a truly ambiguous uh, word or phrase, then it's appropriate to consult other kinds of considerations, including the intention of the legislature uh, and that sort of thing. The disagreement seems to be about whether this was really an ambiguous phrase at all. When even looking at the context of the uh, of the enactment and the other provisions, if this was uh, if this phrase, an exchange established by the state, 
can possibly mean an exchange established by anybody, whether it's the state or the federal government, uh, in context. And for the justices in the dissent, uh, this was just a clear statute, and there was uh, the court had no business, in essence, rewriting it to mean something else in certain instances when it was being used to describe uh, these subsidies. Uh, Justice Scalia has another great one-liner. He says, we should, uh, after, after the court has now rewritten this law three times to save it from constitutional challenges, that's his charge, we should stop calling it Obamacare, we should start calling it SCOTUS care. That's a, a pretty good one. <laughs> you know, it's funny, because you mentioned the um, uh, statements, uh, Senator Coates had made a statement and others, but to some extent, uh, and some people are saying this, it could be seen as a gift to um, the people who are criticizing it because the court has now allowed them to criticize it all they want. They can come out, but of course, the, the difficulties in fixing the problems that Kosali alluded to had the decision got the other way, um, uh, you know, are, are averted for them. They don't have to worry about going in and fixing that mess. Um, not that, you know, as Ryan rightly says, I mean, that, that the court should be guided ultimately by that, although it's hard to think that that justices are immune like the rest of us from thinking about, gosh, what would actually happen? What would be the impact on real people? You know, courts should care about the impact on real people. Um, but, uh, but here, really, just trying to hew to this principle of, you know, the majority said it is ambiguous. Mm -hmm. So we have to look at all of this stuff and come up with the best reading we can that makes the most sense given what was intended here. Um, and we did. And just, again, to clarify, so Kosali, if, if uh, a, a person who had a, a, a policy in Indiana on the, through the federal exchange was paying $120 a month if this had gone the other way, they very soon would have been paying about $450 a month, right? So, Unless there were various possible provisions to delay the effect of this, to figure out how states that were on the federal exchange could create a state exchange. So all those were just possibilities at the time the decision was made. Right. So from a, a political standpoint, I know all you guys like to talk about the law and policy and not politics, but it, it seems kind of odd. It seemed odd to me when I kept reading all these disappointed politicians and criticisms of the Supreme Court when 160,000 Hoosiers were going to be faced with a, a real burden if the decision had gone the other way. Anybody, I don't, I don't, Can I just say yeah. one other thing to keep in mind is what the court did with this case was interpret a statute written by Congress. Mm -hmm. If there's disagreement with how this decision came out and the idea was, no, we want to withhold subsidies to try to entice the states to create their own exchanges and take more of a role here, Congress can change that law. Mm -hmm. I mean, the law can, can be changed. Well, the likelihood of that, you know, is up for grabs. But um, it's not like the court when it interprets the Constitution, that sets a much higher bar to change the law. You have to amend the Constitution or the court has to revisit that and change its mind down the road. But here, Congress could change the law in theory at least. Mm -hmm. okay. the, the politicians who have come out saying that they were disappointed in this result, mm -hmm. I, I take them at their word that they genuinely thought the, the statute was written and it meant what it said when it said exchanges uh, uh, established by the state. And I don't think uh, that the Republicans in Congress, for example, uh, were would have just uh, sat idly by and let the subsidies expire. I think because there were a number of plans being kicked around that would have restored the subsidies, 
But it would have been a powerful bargaining chip for those folks, uh, and it would have meant that in passing a new law, they could have uh, accomplished other objectives for health care reform. I know a lot of the plans would have removed the individual mandate, for example, which is something that's uh, very unpopular, uh, and uh, particularly among uh, critics of uh, Obamacare. So I think it, it's not uh, that they would have let those uh, subsidies expire uh, over the long term. I think it would have been a political challenge for the GOP to get behind a single plan and to pass it through Congress and get President Obama to sign it. So fixing the damage would not have been an easy task. But I don't think it's a damage that I don't think it's quite right to say they were celebrating the loss of the <laughs> subsidies. I think they saw this as a, a next step in fixing a law that they see as having other problems. And this would have afforded an opportunity to correct uh, other problems with what that they saw in the law. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, I second that. And I think if the if there were suppose whenever a very complicated law actually plays out in real life, we get to see more about what's in it. And so suppose, I think the conversation would be different if there was another plan that we thought was immediately going to have the support to get through Congress that fixed problems that were noticed in the law after it had gone into effect. All right, we have about 10 minutes to go. If anybody uh, in our audience wants to ask a particular question, we're, we're just fine here going on. But <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you have a particular question you want to ask or a comment you want to make, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free 1-877-285-9348. And the live chat is wfiu.org slash noon edition. Brian, we haven't gotten to talk much about the historic context of this and how that's going to affect your work. And uh, how, how do you see this uh, changing the work you do with students? Um, in terms of the research? Yes. Um, well, my, my take about this is a large portion of the population, whether they supported same-sex marriage or opposed same-sex marriage, they just wanted it settled. They just wanted it settled. And that's one of the things, one thing we asked, uh, we're we're asking right now is, how have your views shifted? And for many people, you know, know, their lines are, you know, well, I'm not as opposed as I used to be. I've eased up on it. I just don't want to hear about it anymore. And so I think what's going to happen is that we're going to see just many people. I think there are many people who are very strongly you know, ju- we're going to be jubilant about this decision, and others who are going to be, you know, really, you know, very, very upset. I think for the vast majority of Americans, however, it's not going to be a big issue for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and one thing that many people said in our interviews has been, you know, I just hear so much about it, you know. And some people said, I hear so much about it, and maybe that's why I become more supportive. Others said, I've heard so much about it, that's why I become much more opposed. Now, mm-hmm. And so my take is the decision is simply going to – the decision has the potential to just make it just more of a non-issue, mm-hmm. sort of normalize everything. And so I'm not intending to do a survey on this in the future because I think it's going to be pretty much settled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brian, do you have a, um, any thoughts or opinions about – what this might mean in terms of the next legislative session. I mean, we had RIF, we went through RIFRA last session, and now the Supreme Court has made its ruling. Is this good? Do you believe this will make it easier for the legislature perhaps to put, um, put rights into the human rights ordinance, or not ordinance, but laws in the state? I guess I'm not as optimistic about that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, in a few years, maybe, but not yet. Okay. 
All right. Well, we have a, you know, in a, in a few minutes to go, I want to see where this is all going to go next. So, Kosali, in terms of, you know, policy decisions about health care and, and the Affordable Care Act, I mean, what are the next big decisions going to be in the next battlegrounds? Yes. Yeah, so, I think uh, there's for Indiana, uh, HIP, to, HIP 2.0, the mm-hmm. Medicaid expansion, and uh, because it's so so new, it's 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 only started in February, and mm-hmm. and uh, already as of June, there are 177,000 new Hoosiers who have signed up for HIP 2.0. That when you consider those who already were in HIP 1.0, that brings the total to over quarter of a million, and and by the estimates. Um, that there are supposed to be about 350,000 Hoosiers who are potentially eligible. eligible. That means we have about 170,000 more Hoosiers who are potentially eligible to, to, to be signed up for Medicaid. So I think figuring out how to reach the uninsured who are eligible and, and making that work as well as figuring out who else is eligible for subsidies. And that's a national issue, too. It's estimated there are about 18 million who are still eligible for exchanges and not signed up nationally. So getting more people signed up. The other things we've mentioned, how are we, what, what's going to be the way that we legislate access in exchange plans? How are we going to deal with insurance companies consolidating and, and what where what's the response going to be if even after all these subsidy dollars are given by the government, that healthcare ends up being unaffordable? Mm-hmm. So well, big challenges. And just again, thank you very much for explaining uh, the some of the impacts of and and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just trying to get my arms wrapped around this. So under the Affordable Care Act, two ways to insure the uninsured were um, Medicaid expansion, which Indiana has done in a very, Mike Pence deserves a lot of credit. He's done, mm-hmm. he's created this HIP 2.0 plan, which now, as you said, there are 177,000 new Hoosiers who are, have insurance through that. And then the exchange subsidies, which basically has allowed 180,000 or 160,000 that have subsidies. Mm-hmm. So. In total, from the Affordable Care Act, it appears that somewhere close to 350,000 Hoosiers now are covered that wouldn't have been otherwise. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. All right. So on the same-sex marriage issues, um, this you guys explained very clearly that very clearly that uh, Justice Kennedy was not very clear. And it was, <laughs> so, <laughs> so what's going to be challenged coming up? Are there going to be challenges? I'll tell you one one question I have, and the decision's so new, and I won't, you know, yeah, obviously sure. I need to go back and sit with it some more. But because the due process rationale, the substantive due process, fundamental rights rationale that he relies on quite a bit here, um, draws on a line of cases which also funnels into abortion rights, and we have a lot of state regulation of abortion bubbling up, including some requests for the court to take cases to review state regulations. I guess I wonder, given that Justice Kennedy is often a linchpin mm-hmm. <laughs> decider in some of these cases, what that might mean for his votes down the road. Now, he also voted and wrote the decision to strike down partial birth abortion, which is a very late-term procedure and was highly controversial and not supported even by a lot of people who support a constitutional right to access abortion. but. Um, but I kind of I wonder a little bit. That's off the the same sex rights scope. But I it's one of the things that sort of emerged as I was reading through the 
opinion today. Mm-hmm. Ryan? I, I had a similar thought. I, I Reading this opinion, I, I, I wondered whether this opinion will go down in history as another Roe versus Wade, another mm-hmm. landmark case uh, recognizing a, a constitutional right without strong textual support that has to be derived from other principles and precedents and, and which becomes a battleground, a cultural flashpoint that lasts for decades. And you know, everybody who follows the court at all knows what Roe versus Wade is and knows the stakes in that case. Um, or is this case less likely to stir controversy? And and I think the latter answer is right. I, I don't think this case will go down uh, with the same kind of legacy that Roe had, in part because of the dramatic shift in public opinion. I think the court learned something as institutionally about moving too fast on culturally divisive mm-hmm. issues. I think it's quite significant that by the time the court uh, announced this constitutional right that applies in all 50 states, there were already many states that had recognized uh, same-sex marriage uh, as a matter of their state constitution, and 11 states, through the democratic process, with the voters, through the legislature, through a pop- popular initiative, whatever, had uh, endorsed same-sex marriage. There's more of a democratic stamp of legitimacy on this than there would have been if this decision had come out in 1982, for example. I think it would be much more uh, likely to have generated controversy and, and uh, a, back- a political backlash. I, I, there's no question there will be a lot of people who are upset with today's decision and will uh, will resist it. But I, I started the program by saying, as a formal matter, the court isn't supposed to t- be thinking about public opinion at all. But we all know, of course, the justices have public <laughs> opinion in mind. They care about the institutional credibility of the court, and they're attentive to these questions uh, of, of whether there will be public acceptance of their decisions. And so if this is the, an example of the court uh, following instead of leading, this is, uh, I, think that's, I think that's how this case will be remembered. All right. We're, we're out of time, Beth. I'm sorry. Oh, we're no, going no, to no, have to go. We, we have to say goodbye today to Lacey Scarmana, one of our producers who's going to be leaving us. Uh, but Alex McCall will still be here as a producer and also Mike Pat. Cash, thanks for being here. Mary Catherine, always good to see you. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu.